Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Vice President Pence closed out his speech before the Republican National Convention on Wednesday and he appealed to Scripture. But he changed up the Bible by displacing Jesus with the American flag and he displaced Christian service with service to the country. Here is what he said. Let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes. And of course he's making reference here to Hebrews. And let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and freedom. And never forget that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that means freedom's, freedom always wins. And so instead of Jesus, we are to look to the American flag. Instead of the biblical prophets and martyrs, we are to look to American heroes. He equated American freedom with Christian freedom. And I think this civic religion or this Christian nationalism in which he's plundering scripture and the Christian faith is a kind of common ideology. Of course, Hebrews says we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, not old glory. And the freedom spoken of, he's referencing 2 Corinthians 4, is the covenant of freedom that we have in Christ, not the freedom of the United States, not the power to kill and dominate our enemies, but in fact the power of the cross to take up the cross. Now Pence is a self-described born-again evangelical Catholic, and he demonstrated that evangelical Christianity has prostituted itself to serving political purposes. That is, he's not unusual in this. His fusion of God and country has come to typify evangelicals. And I'll try to explain what I mean by the term here. I think Jerry Falwell, in fact, is a key example who literally prostituted his wife and his faith. And this is an indication, let me read the scripture from John, that we are dealing with a fraudulent form of the faith. This is from 1 John 3. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous, meaning Jesus. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now John goes on to explain that doesn't mean somebody's completely without sin, but he's talking about the perverse practice of sin. John and the early Christians, they faced a situation very similar to our own in which Christians were participating in state or Roman sacrificial rites. They were rites handed down by Caesar himself and they were already succumbing to emptying out the faith. And John will equate this with the work of the Antichrist. 
You know, we often think of the Antichrist as something that is obvious, but of course John's point is, no, the Antichrist is sitting next to you in church. We need to sort these people out. That's, that's our problem, right? The Antichrist is an imitation of Christ, a false imitation. And pagan sacrificial rites, you know, that's drawing the line. That's a resistance to the Christian message. You can't sacrifice and participate in the sacrifices to Caesar and be a Christian. If for no other reason than that Christ was presumed to be the ultimate and last victim. And so two things that the New Testament, the early church, you cannot participate in the sacrificial rites. And of course you can't participate in the military because of their two realms. And this is the struggle that Paul is warning about also Paul describes this as the problem of the man of lawlessness. He says in Thessalonians, will use the Christian religion to exalt himself. Quote, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple. He will create a parallel religion that deploys state symbols as sacred symbols. And both Paul and John are building upon an Old Testament trajectory. They're familiar with this tendency because, you know, this is the archetypal understanding in passages like Ezekiel 28. The king of Tyre presents himself as the ultimate pious king and the description is, well, he's actually the devil himself. And so we can see the Antichrist as reversing the path of Christ. Think of Philippians, which describes Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. The Antichrist will do just the opposite. I've witnessed, witnessed this throughout my life. Uh, I think I became a Christian, I think it was 1969, and I was baptized in a little town in Texas. And think of 1968, the most turbulent and traumatic year of the 20th century. You know, we had the Vietnam War was heating up, the Battle of Quezon, Johnson increases the troop numbers to 500,000, half a million troops. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Robert Kennedy was assassinated. There was an eruption of violent protests across the country. The underlying antagonisms within the culture were erupting. Not so unlike today. The same problem, I think, has circled around. And so one of the marks of what I am calling evangelicalism, and I understand the term is, it can be quite vague and it can include many kinds of people. But one of the things, one of the characteristics that I'm going to talk about is that the belief in Jesus and the ethics of Jesus are separated from one another. In the Christian churches, this is the reason that Alexander Campbell, who was one of the founders of the Christian church, he refused evangelicalism. He objected to the evangelical alliance's statement of faith in 1846 in regard to matters of conversion and faith. And of course, this is the issue of the idea of baptism. 
connected to the work of the church and the work of the spirit. Campbell's point is you have to experience the discipleship. You have to experience the saving work of the church. And he saw the evangelical faith as it existed in 1840s as denying this. He objected to the notion of total depravity. He objected to the Calvinism that is inherent. He says that faith could not float free of the embodied practices of the church. That's the idea. How you saved. It's not simply something that happens in your heart, but it's something that happens to all of you. You join a community of the saved and you put upon yourself salvific practices. Not that the works save you, but that salvation is a process of discipleship, of communion, of baptism. And what seems evident is the moral bankruptcy of evangelicalism, I think that we're witnessing at a national level, is just coming full circle. The ideology, and I'll call it an ideology, is like every other. And the point of Christianity is not to worship this idol, this ideology, but it's to name it and recognize it. I'm going to say three things. As I hold up two fingers, I'm going to say three things. <laughs> I'm going to say three things about ideology. I just want to illustrate what, what I mean by that. And maybe the simplest way is just to illustrate from the book of Genesis. And what we see in the story of the fall of man is that step one, in an ideology, a lie displaces the truth. Step two, this lie or this new truth defines itself always by what it is against. It's going to oppose something. Good is against evil, evil's against good. The third point is the ideology erupts. It always erupts. It shows itself in the way John is describing. That is, you can't believe in an ideology and be a follower of Jesus. Those are two different things. And what will show that you're not a follower of Jesus is this thing implodes on you through an incapacity to put on the work of Jesus, to walk as Jesus walked. Okay, so number one is ideology is a lie. It's a cover-up. And of course, the problem here is that, as we were discussing in Sunday school, the ideology blinds us to the fact that we are believers and practitioners. We can be of an ideology. How would you know? And this, I'm talking about my problem here, because my education in Bible college, in seminary, I think it largely numbed me to the distinction between Christianity and nationalism a kind of Christian nationalism. And I began to see this as a missionary in Japan. I became fully aware, I believe, that my religious faith had been subverted by an ideology. I began to recognize that the basic elements of Christianity, I mean, just the core of the faith, biblical inerrancy, conversion, personal faith, they can all be hijacked and used by an ideological system. You know, biblical inerrancy, it sounds good, but it displaces the idea of inspiration with a negative statement. Think about it. No errors, which signifies nothing. It's a negative statement. Accepting Jesus into your heart, 
I mean, this is the thing we've all heard. Devoid of ethics, devoid of entry into a community of the saved, is made into an amorphous inward event that can signify nothing at all. And the biblical significance is displaced with a sign that is unattached to any significance. And this is the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis, it puts two elements on the same coin. Good on one side of the coin, evil on the other side of the coin. This is the serpent-inspired ideology. You will know good and evil, and by doing the evil, the good will come. You will be like gods. It seems to be saying something grand and significant, right? But of course, it's a lie. And being like God, then in this instance, knowing good and evil, what is it actually doing? What's actually happening? It's displacing knowledge of God. They knew God. They walked with God. They had access to the tree of life. And so ideology is primarily defined or identified with what it is not. This is probably not as true today as it was when I was growing up in Texas. But you know, what was Christianity? What was American Christianity? The one thing we knew is we weren't communists. And that defined it. And so in the same way, Stalinist Russia, you know, the will of the party, what is that? Well, that's very ambiguous because it just turns out the will of the party is the will of the leader of the party. Or the way that freedom is deployed in America, the way that Mike Pence employs freedom, but he's just doing what many people have done. National freedom from communism. We're not communists, not something, and that not something defines us. I don't mean to pick on Jerry Falwell, but the, the establishment of the moral majority. He's the son of Jerry Falwell. The, he's a lawyer. He and his wife continually invoke the name of Jesus. It's empty of content. They have presided over one of the most puritanical institutions in the country. I'm not saying it hasn't done good. Maybe it has. But as Paul says, as John says... The emptiness of this thing will show itself in the works that result. You will establish the good through the evil. The one who says in 1 John 2, 3-6, I have come to know him. If you say that and you do not keep his commandments, this person is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Not complicated, right? I think if we have to see, is there content? I'm thinking here, you know, a, a typical evangelical organization is the National Prayer Breakfast. Every president from Dwight Eisenhower to the present day have attended the National Prayer Breakfast. And they use the name Jesus. It revolves around Jesus. But I'm saying that this Jesus doesn't mean much. It functions as a kind of political point. It's a kind of empty signifier. And the agenda of the group is to, and this is a quote, 
is to make connections with financiers and industrialists, congressmen, television industry, news industry, state governments, seminaries, and churches, and junior executives. What is their purpose? There's their purpose. That's the unifying part of it. And so a word concept or what we might call a master signifier, we can imagine, oh, the knowledge of good and evil be like God's. We can imagine it has profound significance while it's emptied of any real content. But the idea of an ideology is that they can unite around this thing and it provides their allegiance and the resulting group you know maybe it's a political group maybe it's a religious group but the sure sign that we're dealing with in ideology is that this thing is so malleable as to be empty and the result the fruit that John is describing does not result in the ethics of following Jesus in the National Prayer Breakfast, it, you know, they take the most pious act, prayer. We can all agree to pray, right? Who wouldn't want to pray? But I think it detaches this from any particular notion of God, any particular notion of Jesus, any particular notion of petition to God, so that an all-inclusive group of believers, and this is their, their goal, non-believers, atheists, concerned citizens, those seeking political influence, can be joined by this master signifier of prayer. To whom are they praying? Well, you can't designate that too clearly. What is the point of the prayer? And the ideological and empty core is covered over them. There's, by the way, there's a whole documentary on the family and how it's come about and how they've sought political influence and how that it's a kind of all-embracive group of people which promises something, but it's empty. It is an illustration that we can take any concept, even Jesus, and we can empty that concept of significance. And key elements of evangelicalism have done this to things like accepting Jesus into your heart, praying, conversion, the inspiration or the biblical authority, all of those things, any religious term can be emptied and used in a way that it was not meant to be used. Point one. I can count to one. I got that. The second point is that ideology contains an antagonism that will always erupt. The classic example that John is talking about. Well, you'll know them because what they do you know, think back to Genesis at the fall of man. Do you remember that the first sentence that Adam speaks? I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. It's the first time the word I is used in all of Scripture. The word had never appeared before. Adam is calling himself by a name, by a word, by a signifier that he had never used before. And of course the signifier indicates he is alienated, he is isolated, he is lost. And he attaches this word, I ran, I hid, I was afraid, I was naked. In other words, now the I is separated. We only know what this I is by what it does. 
And what it does is run, hide. The verb, this absence, is given the sign. I think that's what we're describing. It's an empty signifier. And Adam is a bundle of conflict, right? He's over and against his wife. He's over and against others. Paul repeats this story, and he describes that he's repeating it as about himself. But of course, we can all repeat this story because we've all experienced the conflict. I do what I do not want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. We are torn against ourselves. And this antagonism or conflict is not a secondary part of ideology. The antagonism is at the core of ideology. It will always work the same. The knowledge of good and evil names nothing other than the fact that one thing is divined over and against the other thing. You know, it's not that Adam and Eve suddenly discover truth or their true knowledge, just the opposite. They've relinquished access to truth, to God, to life. And they've relinquished it for a lie. And where their original relationship to God was really a relationship to a, you know, an ontological truth, what is this new truth? It's just language. It's just a circulating system of signs. Devoid of any content. Good is known through its other, evil. And evil is known over and against its other, the good. And the mistake, and this is the key thing here, the mistake would be to assume the trauma they experience, shame, alienation, antagonism, even internal dividedness. We would be mistaken to think that that is an exposure of the emptiness of the lie. Rather, the lie, with all of its antagonism and trauma, now functions as truth. Here's what I mean. Fear, insecurity, the I against the other, the we against God. That now constitutes their identity. Who are they? Well, they only know who they are by what they're not. In the antagonism, this is definitive of ideology. So the great other for American evangelicalism, uh, or at least when I was a child, was communism. It just posed this huge threat so that it became the very defining element against which Christianity defined itself. You know, these communists, they're tricky, we learned as children. They may pass themselves off as trade unionists. They may pass themselves off as black people in favor of civil rights. This was the accusation of the civil rights movement. Oh, they're all communists. They may pass themselves off as liberal academics. You've got to be careful of those people in those universities. They may be passing themselves off as women in favor of women's liberation. Communists at work there. And so there was a war on cultural Marxism. It began in the 50s. It was really what was taking place when I was a child with the presumption that liberalism, socialism, the civil rights movement, atheism, were all part of a communist plot, a communist front opposing, you know, how do you, how do you fight this? Through the Christian nation. I don't know if you all ever watched William F. Buckley on television. I don't know why as a child I was fascinated with William F. Buckley. And of course he was the premier public intellectual, the premier 
anti-communist. He was a conservative Catholic. And he accused the liberals, you know, historians. He says, well, it's all a conspiracy. He showed how left-wingers, oh, that's just a door for the communists. He opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He said, the advanced white race in the South was justified in taking measures as are necessary to prevail politically and culturally over black people. White people have to take control because these black people, they're controlled by the communists. That was what he's saying. And like nearly every conservative politician of the day, William F. Buckley defended Joseph McCarthy. You remember McCarthy, his whole communist scare thing, the everybody's a communist. And he said we need to recognize, we need to use coercive measures wherever necessary to enforce a new anti-communist conformity. And so in the, his publication, the National Review, it said the civil rights movement was communist inspired, riddled by communists. And so evangelicals like Jerry Falwell Sr., like Billy Graham, Francis Schaeffer, they codified this religion. They defined the religion by its antagonism. And the fusion of the Republican Party with evangelical religion, you know, it's really there in the 60s, but it takes hold with Ronald Reagan, the rise of the Christian coalition with Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson's an old man, I think, on TV yet today. And he designates Ralph Reed as the leader of the Christian coalition. And then the rise of George Bush, maybe this is the culminating, George W., who three days after the terrorist attacks of September 11th, he assured the nation that America's duty was now clear. We have to answer these attacks to rid the world of evil. And what he meant, as you know, indicated in his rhetoric, was the Christian nation of America was now involved in a religious crusade, a literal war for civilization. And this battle for civilization's fight, I'm quoting him, led by the United States, it would be military, it would be metaphysical, he said, the outcome is certain. And this sounds a lot like Mike Pence. Since freedom and fear, justice and cruelty have always been at war and we know that God is not neutral between them. We're on the side of freedom. We're on the side of justice, Bush said. And we would win the fight against evil through violence, war, and the destruction of hundreds of thousands of lives. Bush began a crusade which would fuse state and church in the fight for Christian civilization. And his conception of this world struggle is, I believe, the thing that has been inherited by evangelical religion. This is a story, you know, that we could tell it and we would need volumes to tell it. Countless examples. Before I came along, you know, the John Burt Society. You remember Anita Bryant and her whole thing against homosexuality. Robert Bork. So the characters and the causes, they just multiplied. And the point is evangelicalism devolved into an ideology defined by its antagonisms. And I think that's still true today. In addition to an empty signifier, that was point one, you know, freedom, prayer, democracy, whatever. It can just be an empty word. 
And then point two, there's an inherent antagonism, good against evil, communists against Christianity. The third point is the real power of ideology is the force which it seems to ward off, and yet it actually unleashes the very thing. It unleashes an antagonism. You know, think of Adam and Eve, the shame and death that they experience. It was contained as part of their new identity. And I think this is always true of ideology, that we would deny death, we would negate the negation. We would make an absence of a seeming positive presence. And the problem becomes the solution under a different name. That is the inherent antagonism at the center. It cannot endure. It will always erupt. As Paul explains, this body of death, you know, the antagonism. I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do I don't do. That is an antagonism that is erupting and resulting in a living death. And I believe the American ideology we're witnessing on the streets today is not far removed from you know, the eruption of sexual perversion in the Roman Catholic Church and evangelical churches. The slave in every master-slave relationship will struggle against this normalizing identity. That in some way the underside of the law the civil rights protesters, the draft age youth when I was young, the veterans of the Vietnam War, all of this was erupting in the 1960s. And it's erupting again, I think, in a kind of final culmination today. The failure of the ideology is made apparent in these eruptions. When it erupts, even the practitioners of ideology, they know what they're doing, but they continue to do it. Those seeking revenge, replace and become. You know, this is the story of Cain and Abel. They put a mark on Cain because he killed Abel. And then Lamech comes along and says, I will do God's work for him. I will take revenge. And he murders and writes poetry about it. You can read the first murder poetry in Genesis 4. It's kind of the early rappers, you know. And those seeking then the revenge, those who would take God's revenge, they become the new sociopaths. That's the generation of Noah, right? They're all killers. They all have a religion that is their own religion. Think of the slaves. They may revolt, but they become the new masters. The Marxist exposure of capitalism, you know, it describes the exploitation of the working class, and it gives rise then to a new ruling class, the party elites. The anti-communism of the Cold War culminates in the weaponizing of the world. We now have the possibility of mutually assured destruction. Think of Jimmy Swaggart, Ted Haggard, preaching against homosexuals. That was thematic while they were carrying out a homosexual affair. The anti-brand of Christianity erupts. It needs its enemies. It needs the communists. It needs the Muslims. It needs the liberals. It needs the homosexuals so as to define itself, but then it unleashes the antagonism which defines it, and even the awareness of this false consciousness. It cannot bring it to a halt. We're describing a cycle 
that I believe requires divine intervention. And that's the whole point. That Christ promises that the blood of Abel cries out. It cries out through generations, through the voice of all oppressed peoples. And his promise is fulfilled when the cry of those on the underside of ideology. See, ideology always hurts somebody because the ruling elite gets to oppress those who are ruled. And those who are lied about, those who are suppressed by the agonism, the promise is they'll be relieved by Christ. This is the point that Christ hears the blood of Abel crying out. And this is the difference, I think. We can very easily identify authentic Christianity from what I'm describing as the false form of the faith. Does the form of the belief, does the form of the religion, does it challenge or does it support the status quo, the cultural status quo, right? Does it just accommodate that or does it challenge that? Does it side with the oppressed, the ruling class, or does it, does it side with the oppressors? Does it support putting people on crosses? Or does it identify with the crucified one? Anti-communist Christianity, right-wing political Christianity, they all have as their underside the cry of suppression, of black suppression, the suppression of women, the suppression of immigrants, the destruction of budding democracies and popular movements throughout the world. I counted up. I, I became a Christian 52 years ago. And after the most turbulent year in the 20th century, a turbulence, I believe, over the inherent antagonism of a false faith, I believe it's boiling over today. Evangelicalism is the embodiment of this long-standing antagonism and emptiness. And the false center of an ideological faith, it will no longer hold. It will no longer serve to suppress some and comfort others. And so we need to read the signs, as John tells us, as Paul tells us. We need to be able to name the idols. And if we can read the signs, we can see it's time to relinquish any form of ideology, any form of an ideological faith for the religion of Christ, the crucified one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.